Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stahlsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stalsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks, Scott. It's good to be back. Newly ordained in the United Methodist Church. That's right. Yeah, just two days ago as of the time of this recording. We're looking for better ontological, uh, you know, an ontological change in your contribution here. Should be. There should be one. Yep. I hope so. So first up, our first reading is from the book of Kings, First uh, Kings 19, 1 through 4. Then they say 5 through 7, 8 through 15. You know, there's the parenthetic sort of bracketed reading. But here we have Ahab telling Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Here he'd sort of been victorious over the prophets of Baal and uh, even slayed them with the sword. He'd, he'd, he'd sort of brought judgment on Ahab in the, in the northern kingdom, right? And... It, you know, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like one of the, one of these prophets by this time tomorrow. So he gets, gets up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which is in Judah, which is, you know, not the part of the, of Israel he was sort of called to minister to. And he asks, he sort of uh, has counsel with the Lord and, um, you know, he, he winds up going on the mountain before the on the mountain of the Lord, and there's fire and and there's uh, wind and there's all these th- or there's wind, there's all these earthquakes, there's and everything. But uh, he hears God in the in the silence, and he is called to go back to uh, the wilderness of Damascus, go back to the place I guess he was ministering in. Epic passage here. Yeah, and because. Uh, the way that ordinary time works and how Pentecost has fallen this year, all of our readings today kind of start in the middle of, of a, a yeah, series of yeah. sorts. And, and this is certainly one. It, what happened in chapter 18, where Elijah conquers the prophets of Baal, is certainly critical to what happens following. I mean, chapter 19 starts with that summary that's got uh, Ahab and Jezebel all upset. It's what triggers the plot point. That drives this. Um, but interestingly, it almost seems as if Elijah hadn't been through that tremendous miraculous victory because he's immediately brought into despair. This this does not seem to be somebody who's running a victory lap, um, who's seen the Lord yeah. do miraculous things. He's he immediately goes into a depression, um, not unlike what happens to Jonah, right? When Jonah sees, yeah, yeah, it, and you have the him taking shelter under a broom tree which is very, a very similar move to what happens to Jonah after he sees um, uh, the people of Nineveh saved. Um, so I think there's some 
there's some parallelism, some some echoing there um, of of prophetic despair when when God actually comes through and does what God promises to do. Yeah, it's interesting too that you you know depending on how you read um, you read this, uh, there's a commentator uh, Dale Ralph Davis who vigorously argues that that the the and I'm getting this because Peter Lightheart is is quoting him here that the translation here is it shouldn't be fears but that he sees and that the word for flee is simply a Hebrew word for go or walk and mm. so he he's I mean Lightheart is saying that that this is less a sort of fear uh, that for himself but a sort of discernment that that the basically Israel is giving is this is being given up to judgment here that he sees the writing on the wall hmm. and that you know really Jezebel is running the show not Ahab mm-hmm. and so he you know that basically he, he thinks that his work is sort of you know that that they've seen the writing on the wall and they've and they've sort of scoffed at it and so I mean I, that's interesting I mean you know interpretively I, I I do think there is a sort of you're right that there is some sort of kind of uh, I mean, he thinks his, his work may be done here, and, and apparently it's not. And, and it could be out of despair, or it could be out of. Although it does seem that it also could be, if on the on Lightheart's kind of interpretation, it could be he's kind of like a Moses who doesn't want to bring judgment down on Israel, right? Mm. Like, Lord, kill me, you know, or where Paul's saying, I would rather die, you know, than you know. It could be that sort of sense. But either way, I think you're right. It's interesting that I'm sure Elijah did not think after the signs and wonders that the that the ruling powers that be in northern Israel would just say, ah, you know, hey, let, we this is more even more the reason to rub out Elijah, right? right. <laughs> and you you could do some interesting uh, interpretation here if you wanted to put an anti anti violence reading up on it, um, because that scene ends with. With Elijah killing all of the prophets of Baal, it could be that Elijah is finding that that violent end is not as satisfying as 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 empire and kingdom would want us to believe it is, and and this might be a discernment period afterwards where he's trying to come to terms um, with with how God really works, and and in in this kind of uh, bloody victory over the enemies might is not always or never is what it seems cracked up to be. Yeah, that is definitely, yeah. And, and also, I think, you know, it's interesting that you th- that there's this sense that the, you know, when Jesus says that I've come, you know, not to bring peace, but the sword in some sense, right? Like, the gospel is a word of judgment on human uh, pride, imperialism, you know, the, our own depravity. And so when you know, when the principalities and powers animate human culture and the gospel is proclaimed, it it provokes a response, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is often quite negative. You know, that, that the word of, of grace and deliverance that God's salvation is requires a sort of acceptance of the diagnosis that can be hard yeah. to, you know, the, the, the cure implies a diagnosis that oftentimes one does not want to, uh, you know, to, to concede to. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. There are also clear allusions here to the work of Moses. It says that, that Elijah is with the, with the strength brought to him by one meal travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Um, that's literally a power bar. (laughs) 
<laughs> power bar. That's right. And and comes to the cave that many many commentators and interpret interpreters over the over the millennia have seen as the cave where Moses saw the glory of God pass by. Um, yeah, yeah. And and of course, like as as you mentioned in the setup here, you have earth, wind, and fire, none of which bring the voice of God. Um, and I do hope you find something from Earth, Wind, and Fire to put in the bumper here. Exactly. <laughs> That's just my That's challenge so to you. And what, but interestingly, again, in, in in opposition to what happened previously in chapter eighteen, it seemed like God did speak through those miraculous ways. You had fire coming down from heaven to burn up the the sacrifice to show that that uh, Elijah's sacrifice was acceptable and that Baal's the Baal prophets uh, sacrifices were not. So you do see God speaking in ways like that. I, it, so I think if you read these chapters together, you can't make a clear final conclusion and say, God never speaks through the fire. God never speaks through the earthquake. It's just in this moment, God doesn't. That God speaks in silence or many people will like the King James rendering the still small voice. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because you have this, you know, Paul quotes this passage in, in Romans 11, right? Uh, that, you know, he said, he, he talks about Elijah, you know, talking about, did God reject his people? And he says, no, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he, how he appealed against God, Lord, they've killed your prophets, tore down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 have not bowed the knee to bow. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that, that the, the, this sort of, uh, you know, N.T. Wright talks about how God contends with sin and evil in Israel. I mean, elect the, the, the election comes with it, the burden of, Sort of being the locus of 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 of, of where God is is fighting the, the war against sin and death and 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 yet there's always this remnant you know and through this remnant comes death and resurrection yeah that's right people around you giving you pressure try to resist all the hate that's all around you if you taste it it will hold you So on to Galatians, we have Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29, where Paul's saying, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law of pedagogos, uh, our, our, de- our disciplinarian, until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we're no longer subjects to the law, you know, to the disciplinarian. This great passage that once we're baptized into Christ, we're clothed with Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek slave or free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're the child of the promise, Abraham's offspring. So a great sort of passage that talks about the nature of grace and how grace is a big leveling force. And in terms of how we enter into a common baptism, where these distinctions become secondary to to the childhood that we receive in our baptism. And, you know, there's a, this is a, of course, uh, verse 20, Eight is beautiful in, in talking about how these distinctions are no longer important. And yet, of course, if you read the whole Pauline, rest of the Pauline letters, you see that he very much sees that these distinctions are still there. He makes distinctions between how men and women should act in worship, for example. He writes to um, 
Philemon and ask, asks him to take slave Onesimus back as a slave. And um, obviously the distinctions between Jew and, and Gentile are still there. Um, so, so how you, how you reconcile this claim that those, that seemingly these distinctions are gone yet remain in, in this in between period while we wait for all things to be made right in the eschaton uh, is, I think, just at the core of, of what it means to live in this world, how to gather together as a church. Um, because there are differences, there are distinctions. We can't pretend that they don't exist. And yet they all take a, they all take a secondary function to the, to the brotherhood and sisterhood that comes through baptism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, and also it's, yeah, right. It's not as if they're immediately, uh, that, that, people no long, longer belong to these sociological groups. It's, it's that those distinctions are relativized, mm, right, right, in the body of Christ. And that the the relationship, because in some sense, right, if there's no difference, then there's not anything radical about this. It's saying right. that these differences take on a different relationship to one another, you know, through uh, in Christ. And now it's interesting, too, because now before faith came, right, you could read that, uh as subjective here, the subjective genitive, you know, before, you know, our believing came, or it could be an objective before faith came, the faith kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, under the faith until, in, you know, regarding the law until faith would be revealed, but because it, it's Abraham, right, is mentioned, I, I don't think it can be subjective in the sense of all of a sudden people started believing it in a certain way. But it's the sense that, that, that the, way, the way that Abraham, who had this faith even before the law, and Israel under Torah, and now Jew and Gentile who are united in Christ, you know, I guess the faith revealed is how this, this sort of golden thread that knits all this together, that sort of acorn that becomes the oak tree of Christ, and how that this is one organic story and reality, grace of God working, uh, you know, in, in mysterious ways revealed now, you know, uh, so, I mean, I think it's something, it doesn't seem like it's getting at something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think one other thing that's important to, to point out here is just the change in the conjunctions um, where, where you have Jew or Greek, slave or free, but then it's not male or female, it's male and female. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about the difference there, but um, certainly as you're reading it, make sure to not just fall into... Um, repetition and, and incorrectly read male or female. Um, and whether the claim is that gender is a different kind of thing than uh, the, the other the other two things that are being compared, um, or whether it has to go whether it goes back to the creation um, account in Genesis and and God's how God construes those two things. Um, but the, just want to make note that that is that is a difference there in the text. Yeah, that is interesting. And you know, I think also, I mean, the homiletical eye definitely rightly eyes in on the egalitarian nature of, of this passage. But I think the root of that is this is being united to Christ, which is, you know, what what do all the Jew and Greek, slave or free, male and female have in common? The universal sinful human condition. They're all mm. Adamic children east of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. And so the leveling fact is that is their need and the redemption that it occasions. So it's not it's not it's it's a kind of I mean the gospel is it's the humiliation that leads to humility, and then through that humility, equality. I guess because mm-hmm. I think you can, you it can it can sort of you, you can get a sort of contemporary kind of egalitarian 
kind of woke hermeneutic mm-hmm. uh, that that really undercuts, in some sense, like you, you, the radical social social implications here are rooted in a personal and a gospel that personally addresses each each person whether jew or yeah. greek slave or free male or female you know that all stand in this need and and that universal individual need has a radical social implication right as right. as as you're clothed in christ and now part of the same body that's right and and what is sort of any kind of any kind of oppressive ideology, right, is rooted in oftentimes th- this need to sort of one up yourself, right? A group right. needs to sort of define itself over and against for its own sense of esteem, which is just another form of work of another form of of self justification, right? That's or, right. You know, it, so it becomes another kind of law. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're you're either self justified individually or, or as a group, or you're justified by the blood of the lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Speaking of the lamb, on to the gospel ring here, Luke 8, verses 26 through 39. We got Jesus coming to Garasanus with the Garasian demoniac. And we have this guy who has got this legion of demons in him. And he says to Jesus, you know, uh, the the demon, apparently the demons, the legions say, you know, what do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the God, son of the most high God. and you know it, it they jesus uh, once he gets his name uh these demons start to beg him not to enter not to um go to the back into the abyss so he throws them into this herd of swine and they rush down the steep bank into the lake and are drowned so i mean it's rough on the pigs right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and of course the swine herds say what happened cuz i guess you know what are they going to do cuz right they don't have work to do for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they find this guy who'd been tormented for years, it seems, and, and afflicted, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And and they're afraid. It's funny. They're not thrilled. They're afraid. Uh, and then uh, they ask Jesus to leave him. <laughs> Just like mm-hmm. Elijah, right? Like, yep. Uh, hey, uh, there's this great sign. Okay, please leave now. <laughs> Because they're seized with fear, and the demoniac wants to go with him, and Jesus says, "Return home and and tell the story, you know, what God's done for you." So he becomes an evangelist and proclaiming in Gerasenes, Gerasenes, uh, what Jesus has done for him. Great, uh, you know, a popular gospel story to some degree, I guess. And I think one of the the signals here for us is what what immediately precedes it in the a few verses before this is the account of. As the disciples with Jesus are crossing the the lake in the boat, this great storm comes up and they're all afraid that they're going to die. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. And their response, like the people respond to Jesus um, after the healing, is to be both afraid and amazed. And and their yeah. their question yeah. um, doesn't seem to be one of, of reverence and worship so much as just this overwhelming sense of who on earth is this person that could do this. Um, so, so then you have Jesus crossing waters um, to get to uh, this region where, where he comes across the, 
the man who's possessed. Um, so I think it almost seems to be like a, like a setup and a repeat, or there's, I'm sure there's some technical, uh, technical word for that for, for the Bible scholars use, but you, you almost have a preview, um, in, in the calming of the storm and then more details, longer, a longer account of, of Jesus doing the same kind of calming the chaos, bringing healing and reconciliation and salvation um, in the way that he announced that he would early early on in Luke. Um, in fact, his inaugural sermon in chapter 4 promised to bring good news to the poor and to release the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. That's you see all that happening here for this man um, who's now in his right mind, clothed, sitting at Jesus' feet, ready to be one of the first evangelists. Um, yeah, it's interesting because the sitting at the feet, this is like what, where a rabbi, right? You'd sit at the feet mm-hmm. of a rabbi. Sure. You know, here he's ready to be a disciple. You know, yeah, he's ready to be a student uh, and to be instructed. And this is sort of, it's interesting because uh, what, you know, you think of like in, in Genesis after Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens? They hear, they hear and they hide, right? Mm-hmm. They, they hurt, you know, there's enmity and likewise under the possession, you know, there's this sort of enmity, you know, what have you to do with me? You know, there's this, and just as sort of as the serpent in the garden creates this enmity where we, we don't want to sit in, in communion with the Lord. There's this, you know, this is the same thing seems to be going on with this legion of demons. And, and when they are removed, he's in his right relationship, right? To, to the creator, uh, you know, he's to made flesh. He's, you know, in communion with him. And, and of course this whole notion of the, the demons having a collective name and meeting their demise in pigs. I mean, it's really puzzling, uh, but but there have been some good. There are some good cultural clues that might help us understand. Uh, for example, legion could be a reference to a cohort of of Roman soldiers. You know, the five to six thousand men that would make up a legion. Um, so it could be a reference to empire. It could be a reference um, to the kind of power that Moses spoke out against Pharaoh, and that many were hoping that Jesus would lead against Rome. Um, yeah. And, and there was, according to a couple uh, commentators, there was a, a legion or, or at least some segment of a Roman army who in that area took the symbol of a pig as their standard. Um, so it could have, this could be a reference, uh, or a confrontation. Man, I wouldn't want to be in that legion. What about the one that takes the lion or the right. the time? <laughs> is that hygienic or what? <laughs> yeah, you know what? What's interesting too, I think, is that you know here's this first venture into Gentile territory, right? And Luke's the gospel that is going to make explicit, you know, Luke acts that they're going to go into all the world, and mm-hmm. it looks like the first ve- venture here into Gentile territory doesn't go that well. They say, "Please leave mm-hmm. us," yeah, but. But he leaves a disciple, you know, one who's called to, you know, it's almost apost- it's apostolic, sure. right? Say, go, he sends him back. He gets his commission before the the twelve get theirs in Luke nine. That's so I good. mean, he's he here. You have this interesting commissioning even before, you know, it's a foreshadowing of you know of of 
those outside the house of Israel. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, you know, the other thing I was thinking of is how freaked out the people are. You know, Bart says that the gospel stories are basically the story of the judge judged in our place, and that that this is human humanity's undoing is we want to be the judge. We want to say what fruit we should eat, who's who's in, who's out, what's fitting, what's not fitting. It says the and the only one who is fit to judge is judged in our place. And when Jesus is is shown to be the one who really is the true judge, it usually freaks people out. And here here's an instance right where Jesus is saying what's fitting and and, and where demons go and these things. And it, it it's arresting. And it, it often because we spend so much time, you know, in the judgment seat, mm. uh, it, what is, you know, I think Tim Keller said sin is, is humanity wanting to sit where only God deserves to sit, right? That's sin and idolatry. And the atonement is God sitting where humanity deserves to sit, right? That's right. <laughs> the judge judged in our place. So, right. Yeah. What a great story. So much uh, great preaching stuff here. A lot. There's a lot to, to go with there. Not, not to mention, you know, the, the entering into the water could give you all kinds of space to talk about baptism. If you're, if you're blessed enough to have a baptism this Sunday and this is your text, yeah. I would say go with that. Well, Glenn, thank you so much and go with God and preach it now. Newly ordained, you know, thank you. Uh, you know, give him heck in the pulpit there. <laughs> okay. You too, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at meaningfulworship.blogspot.com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.